Okay, we worked our way up to verse 14 uh, last week, and as we, uh, if you look at verse 15, it says, so when you see the abomination of the desolation spoken of, and we know from the book of Daniel, when does the abomination of desolation take place in reference to the tribulation period? It's at the midpoint. So we, the things that we've studied so far are all leading up to the midpoint of the tribulation. And we dropped off, we didn't cover verse 14 because I wanted to be able to give this a little more time for discussion. Verse 14 says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. So as our Lord's discourse approaches the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation, verse 14 raises a number of interpretive issues. What exactly is meant by the gospel of the kingdom? Is this proclamation still a future event? What does a witness to all nations mean? What is meant, and then the end shall come? So we want to start with this discussion of the gospel of the kingdom. And there's two different major viewpoints. All right, the gospel, number one, that we preach about salvation in Christ that is proclaimed throughout all the New Testament epistles. Or two, the good news of the coming thousand-year reign of Christ. So we're told in the passage, the gospel of the kingdom is going to be proclaimed throughout all the nations. And then what happens? The end comes. Now, first of all, we need to understand when we're talking about the end coming, we're talking about the end of this age coming and Christ coming and setting up his kingdom. We are not talking about the rapture of the church. Uh, you are going to hear all kinds of messages and all kinds of, of guys telling you that the way we hurry up the rapture or the thing that has to occur before Christ can return for his church is that the gospel has to be proclaimed throughout all the world. And there's a big missionary movement going on right now that the driving force of that is... Let's get the gospel to all nations. And so as soon as we get the gospel to all the nations, then Jesus can return. All right. We've talked about the rapture of the church. We've said the rapture of the church is what? Imminent. Imminent. And what does that mean? Anytime. So anytime that you hear someone saying, here are the signs of the rapture. There are no signs of the rapture. There is nothing that needs to happen before Christ can return for his church. And there never has been. You know, the apostle Paul, if you, if you think about his, his words in Thessalonians, he says, then we who are alive and remain. Not, and then those who are alive and remain. Paul was expecting the rapture to come in his day. Matter of fact, he had to deal with a perversion of that truth because some of the Thessalonians quit working. 
They said, well, since Jesus is going to come back, he's going to come back in my lifetime. I don't need to work anymore. So they quit working. And so then Paul had to address, you know, they won't work, don't let them eat. They'll want to eat till Jesus comes back. So maybe they'll work again. So we come to this gospel of the kingdom. So the question is, right, we're going to call the gospel that we preach that's talked about, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the gospel is what? The, the good news of what? Died, buried, rose again the third day. Okay. That is the gospel, Paul says, that we preach and by which we are saved. So is that the gospel that is being talked about here in Matthew chapter 24, the gospel of grace, or is there a different gospel, the gospel of the kingdom? Are they the same are they different? Now, let's, let's think about this, okay? Steve, you're going to say different. So you're going to tell me there's more than one gospel? Yeah, I'm going to say this is a gospel that's preached in the tribulation in a thousand years. But, okay, same, but there, there's same, more than one gospel? Same gospel. Well, if it's the same gospel, how can they be different? Huh? Okay, it can be in a different period, but it's still, you're going to tell me there's more than one gospel that people can get saved by? Uh-huh, well, I, I, I'm just asking you the question. You said they're different. You have more than one gospel. Oh, is there only one gospel? Oh, okay, so, so if there's... Nobody else is going to want to say anything tonight. So, so that's why. So here's, I'm asking the questions right now. Okay, all right. So uh, the the gospel by which people are saved by, and that uh, you're going to say that what we preach today is different than what Jesus preached. Oh, it's the same then. So Jesus went around everywhere proclaiming the gospel is that I am going to die, get buried, and rise again. That's what he preached everywhere. He preached the kingdom's coming. Also, oh, you're saying there's difference. We have more than one gospel. Uh, uh huh. That was mean. That's. If you think I'm being mean, you should come to when I've taken a seminary class and I start asking the prof questions and that. Uh, the last class I, I took, that poor guy wished he'd never stepped foot in the class. Uh, the class loved it because he was very boring and didn't know what he was talking about. And so he started saying something. And I just thought for fun, I'm going to start asking this poor guy questions. And, and I, I shouldn't have done it. But I did enjoy it, and so did the rest of the... Did you pass the class? Huh? Did you pass the class? Yeah, I passed the class. <laughs> and if you want to know what I was tying him up in strings about, was I was tying him up about the new covenant. Because the new covenant was given to the Jews. 
So it was given to the Jews. How are the Gentiles in the new covenant? And are exactly the same covenant we're in, or are there two different covenants? And are there... <laughs> my, 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 I, I, I'm just going to say, which is a hotly debated topic, and, you know, there's all kinds of viewpoints on that that he wasn't aware of, but he was after class. Uh, which is, okay, so... Uh, all right, so this is, this is what you're faced with, and we need to talk about this. You know, I've talked about before, uh, we had a class here in the church, and a guy was teaching on the gospel and the kingdom. And so he asked the question, what's the gospel? And... You know, there are a whole bunch of people in our church in this class and people from other churches. And almost in unison, everyone from Maranatha said the gospel is Jesus died, he buried, he was rose again the third day according to the, the scriptures. And I was so proud of everybody putting that out there. Then the teacher said, no, that's not it. There has to be more to it. Okay, now, what he was saying is, that's not what Jesus preached. So there is a, I'm asking this because I'm going to hit another realm of this in a moment. But there is this viewpoint out there that expands the gospel beyond the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And they will do that based on Jesus went about preaching the gospel and healing people and ministering to people. And they'll say, that's all a part of the gospel. So that churches like ours need to expand our definition of what the gospel is. And then some take that. When we do good works, that's part of the gospel. But here's what we need to understand. Whenever you see the word gospel, the word gospel just means good news. Its root is from uh, a messenger that came and had a message to proclaim. And when he was proclaiming good news to them, the gospel just means good news. What we have to ask is whenever you see the term gospel, is good news about what? Because that determines what's being talked about. So, when the Apostle Paul is talking about the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he's talking about the gospel that we proclaim by which we are saved, which is the gospel of grace, which is emphasis on what? It's the good news that Christ died, was buried, and rose again the third day. So what is the gospel that's said that needs to be proclaimed throughout the whole earth before the end comes? It's the gospel of the kingdom. Now, okay, how is that message different? What is the gospel of the kingdom? It's the proclamation, the good news that the kingdom is here or the kingdom is coming. So in the case of Jesus, when he is preaching the gospel of the kingdom, what's he saying to them? The kingdom's here. Your king is right here. He's in front of you. 
The kingdom, and, and there's a verse that's misinterpreted that says the kingdom is in your midst. That oftentimes, the, because of the, the Greek, it can be translated two different ways. It'll be say the kingdom is inside of you. So then they'll talk about the kingdom is really inside of you. And the question is, the gospel of the kingdom is whether Jesus is king of your life or not. Well, I like to have a lot of fun with, and what's a, <laughs> a pet peeve for me is whenever I hear people going around talking about the kingdom, oh, we're doing kingdom work. Uh, you know, I'm working for the kingdom. I always just like to ask the question, hey, tell me what you mean when you use the term kingdom. What do you mean by that term? And the word kingdoms used different ways in the Bible. But most of the time in the New Testament, when the word kingdom is used, you know what it's referring to? Christ's rule for a thousand years and forevermore. So, and, and most people have never thought about Kingdom. I, I mentioned that night in class when he got to the kingdom part. He was ready to kill me after the gospel part. But when he got to the kingdom part, I said, hey, could you define for me what you mean by kingdom? And at this point, he doesn't know I'm the pastor of the church. I'm just some guy sitting there in the class. And I, I went up and said, look, I want you to know I'm the... But his response to that, oh, that's really hard to explain what it is. And, and I get it. Brian. Yeah, we want, the, all right, so I always start with that verse whenever I'm teaching on the kingdom, and I'll go around the room and I'll ask this question. When you pray your kingdom come, what do you mean by that? So, so what do you mean when you... What kingdom? Okay, your rule in your heart. But that's not the way kingdom is used in the Bible. Okay. So, so when we say your kingdom come, what, what Jesus is telling the disciples to pray for is that the kingdom of God will come to earth and that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what's going to happen during the thousand year reign of Christ. His will will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. So, and, and look, I'm going to tell you, you're going to hear the other taught all over the place that it's referring to Christ. You know, you've, you, you've, heard, the, you've heard the analogy. And you haven't heard me use these terminologies, but you'll hear this. Uh, who's on the throne of your life? Who's ruling in your life? Is okay. But are we talking about that in realm of the kingdom? Is what most people have been taught with no thought whatsoever. And first of all, remember when we talked about this before? We have that viewpoint of awe millennialism. They don't believe there's a kingdom coming to the earth. So the only kingdom they recognize would be Jesus on the throne of your heart. 
So I, we just need to think through this. Now, there's nothing wrong with the analogy of thinking, are you letting Christ control you in your life? Uh, I, I just personally wouldn't use that terminology of the throne of your your heart, who's on the throne of your heart, who's, you know, there's nothing wrong whatsoever because we know living inside us is the spirit of God. And we know that there's a battle that goes on. At least I face a battle every day that goes on and whether I'm going to be obedient to the Lord or not obedient to the Lord, whether I'm going to be filled with the spirit or whether I'm going to live in the flesh and do. So all of that is true, but let's just be careful with the terminology that we're throwing around. So just, I, I just challenge you something. The next time you hear someone say to you, hey, I'm working for the kingdom, just ask them, what do you mean by that? <laughs> so the gospel, is it the same or is it different? Depends on the context in which it is being used. Now, what is the same about the gospel of grace and the gospel of the kingdom? That the, the part that is the same between the two is everyone that's going to go into the kingdom is going to go in because of what? The grace of God. Everyone that's going to get saved today is going to get saved because of the grace of God. In that sense... They are the same. How are they different? They're different in what their focus is. This is the gospel of grace that we are proclaiming at this time to the world. The gospel of the kingdom, and we can proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, but when we do so, it should be in reference to, hey, the king's coming, and he's coming back to rule. So Jesus, when he preached the gospel, what gospel was he preaching? The gospel of the kingdom. Matthew tells us that he does that. And during this period of time, we are during the tribulation period, and Matthew is telling us what's the gospel being proclaimed? the gospel of the kingdom. The king is coming back, and you better get ready. So, remember the word gospel means good news. The word simply means good news, but good news about what? The context depends on what is being talked about. Dr. Dwight Pentecost explained it this way. He says, during the time that the politico-religious system of the beast is in absolute control, and that should be beast and not breast. <laughs> and just so you know, since that was a cut in pace from the uh, notes of somebody else, uh, they didn't properly proofread it either. So that's not just on us. Uh, and, and you're going to notice tonight a lot of the notes being in green, at the end of the study, uh, I have a little note there. Uh, because of this section and the technicality there, I've just put in a lot of notes from Dr. Thomas Ice on his teaching on Matthew 24 and 25, and I'm just giving credit to him. So because you notice that's in green, uh, 
That was strictly a cut and paste from his website in there. Okay. All right. All right. The gospel, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world. The gospel of the kingdom was preached by both Jesus and John. There it's referring to John the, the Baptist. This was the announcement of the good news that the kingdom was near. The message had both a soteriological, which means salvation, and an eschatological emphasis. That's talking about eschatology, the end times. The gospel of the kingdom as preached in the tribulation will have two emphasis. On the one hand, it will announce the good news that Messiah's advent is near, at which time he will introduce the messianic age of blessing. On the other hand, it will also offer men salvation by grace through faith based upon the blood of Christ. People are still saved the same way. One of the things that we are sometimes accused of is teaching more than one gospel, teaching more than one way that people can be saved. Hear me very clearly. People are always saved the same way. By grace, through faith. Always. No matter when we're talking. All the way back from Abraham, all the way to the end of time. There's only one way of salvation, and that's through grace and through faith. Right. The context of the passage means this will be fulfilled during the tribulation. A parallel passage is Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 to 7, where John reveals, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an, an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. So you see the parallelism there? So if you remember last week, I said if we are interpreting Matthew 24 correctly, we are going to see what the teaching from Matthew 24 is and how it will line up with the message that's found in the book of Revelation. And so we see in the book of Revelation, again, the statement made that the gospel is basically going to be what? Proclaim to the whole earth. and Just what we're told in Matthew chapter 24. It speaks of global evangelism. The witness of the gospel is given to every individual living at that time. It appears that this may be the time of the greatest evangelism in the world's history. You have the angelic announcement, the witness of the 144,000, and the two witnesses. Now think of that. You have the 144,000, 12,000 for every tribe of Israel... They're going around the world proclaiming the gospel. We have angels proclaiming the gospel. We have the two witnesses that I believe to be Elijah and Moses, but two witnesses that are coming back. So through them, you put that all together, you can see how the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed everywhere to every individual on the face of the earth. This is followed 
by the end coming. If you look back in verse 6, it says, And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. All right, we're told then, early in the first part of the three-and-a-half-year tribulation period, you're going to see this. This is one of the first events of the tribulation period, but we're told what? When that occurs, it's not the end yet. But we're told here, as we reach the midpoint of the tribulation period, that one of the signs that the end is coming soon is what? The gospel being proclaimed to everyone. So before the end, everyone on the face of the earth that's living will hear the gospel. The end being referred to as the end of the tribulation period. Verse 14 occurs just prior to the midpoint of the tribulation. World proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom will happen, it appears, by the midpoint of the tribulation period. So by the time we reach the midpoint of the tribulation period, the gospel of the kingdom will have been proclaimed everywhere. Okay, you with me? Right, right. Our God is a God of grace. His desire is that all will put their faith and trust in him. And so the gospel is going out everywhere. Okay, right. We talked about that briefly last year. Let me tell you what I know, and then I'll tell you my theory as well. All right, what do we know? Well, we've just read that angels are going to be proclaiming the gospel. We know that there will be 144,000 Jewish evangelists who basically, when you hear that 144,000, uh, what you need to think of, that's what they are. They're evangelists. They're going throughout the world. Uh, Jews. Now, I ask myself the question, all right, the church is gone. We've talked about the fact that there can be a period between the rapture of the church and the beginning of the tribulation period. Because the tribulation period begins with the signing of the treaty, not the rapture of the church. Now, as I was taught it as a boy, most people thought those events were one and the same. But it makes a lot of sense to me to recognize the rapture does not start the tribulation period, the signing of the peace treaty. Could that happen the day after the rapture or the day of the rapture? Yes, it could. Could it happen days later? Yeah, it could. Could it happen weeks later? Yeah, it could. Could it happen months or years later? Yes, it could. So we have that whatever interval is going to be there. Now, my thought process is this. We also know that we have the two witnesses. So we have Elijah, and let's just assume for a minute, whether it's Elijah or Moses, 
which I believe it to be, they will at least be in the power of Elijah and Moses. Uh, some people thought it's uh, uh, Elijah and Enoch. Uh, and we're just not going to get into, you know, I, I can do a study sometime on who the two witnesses are and uh, what are the arguments for each of the, the two witnesses. That's not our purpose here uh, tonight. I believe them to be Elijah and Moses. And I, so they can have a ministry to those 144,000 before their actual, actual ministry period begins. Their official ministry is during the first half of the tribulation period. Some try to put them in the second half of the tribulation period. I don't think that works. I believe it's in the first half of the tribulation period. So I just asked myself the question. Who would garner the attention of the Jews? So if you have two, in, if Elijah, they regard him as what? Their greatest prophet. Moses is regarded as what? The giver of the law. Yeah, Moses and Elijah were both on the mountain of transfiguration. I also we have, and I mentioned this just in passing, in the book of Jude, Michael the archangel and Satan dispute over the body of Moses and where it is. Because you remember God buried Moses. Okay. So why is Satan so interested in where the body of Moses is? So I, I would just say to you that what we know is during the first half, you're going to have the two witnesses that are going pre-proclaiming you're going to have 144,000 circling the earth proclaiming. We have angelic involvement in the proclamation of the gospel. All of that occurring. And that's how these, you know, the book of Revelation talks about a great multitude of people getting saved. So that's us. Don. Yes, if we're going to take it literally, that's why some guys say, well, no, we can't take that. I take it literally. Uh, God, you know, and someone say, well, who's going to know what tribe they're really from after all these years? Well, you'd be surprised, first of all, of the research that's being done to identify. And part of that is because only certain Jews can participate in the sacrificial, the role of priest in the sacrificial system that they have better records than people know. And even aside from that, even if here on earth they don't know for sure, who does know for sure? All right, God is going to know that for sure. Now, just to give you something to think about, we'll just throw this, throw this out for you to uh, chew on. How many tribes of Israel were there? How many tribes of Israel were there? Well, 
There are actually 13 tribes of Israel because the tribe of Levi, the priestly tribe in the Old Testament, did not inherit any land. So how come we got 12,000 from 12 tribes of Israel but not 12,000 from 13 tribes of Israel? And there's... there. I, I, <laughs> And, and there's lots of explanations for this. My own personal explanation for this, and, and this is just conjecture on my part, putting some passages of Scripture together, it's part of the reason why I believe the Antichrist is Jewish and not a Gentile. That he comes from the tribe of Dan, which is not listed in the book of Revelation, as having 12,000. Now, there are problems with that view. I'm going to tell you, you know, we, we've already, when we were studying Daniel, we talked about there are arguments on both sides as to whether the Antichrist is Jewish or whether he is a Gentile. And I won't go into all the problems with this view, but just to give you something to think about, there are actually 13 tribes of Israel, not 12. So we're a little bit off course here. This is what talking about the gospel of the kingdom. That's where it gets us. Okay. Okay. Uh, uh, okay, we're on the next page now. All right. Verse 15 relates a key event upon which the passage turns, the abomination of desolation. This event is clearly stated in, to be a fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 9.27. Those of you who were with me in the study on Daniel, one of the reasons we cited that we know the fulfillment of the abomination of desolation has not taken place in the past but would be in the future is because Christ cites it here. And he refers to it, and he's referring to it as a future event. And it says, And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. The abomination of desolation is spoken of not only here in the Olivet Discourse, but also in Daniel 9.27, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 Verses 3 and 4, and I've got the verses there for you. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. It's also spoken of in Revelation chapter 13 in verses 14 and 15. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth. 
telling them to make an image of the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And he was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. So here's some facts about the abomination of desolation. It occurs in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. That's why we know the temple will be rebuilt. There is no Jewish temple now. Well, it, we don't know. It could be either. But we know by the midpoint the temple will be there. Now, what's interesting is what stands on the Temple Mount today? The Dome of the Rock. Now, the Dome of the Rock is one of the most holy places for the Muslims. They believe, and the reason you have the Dome of the Rock there, they believe that that's the site where Muhammad rode on his horse off into heaven. So can you get the idea why that's a pretty holy spot to them? Now, I've asked the question of different scholars because I've heard two different opinions on this. I've heard an opinion of some who say that the temple could be built, rebuilt, without destroying the Dome of the Rock then there are others that insist, no, the Dome of the Rock sits on the space where the temple needs to be. And so I asked this of a couple prophecy experts when they were here talking about uh, the temple, and they, looked, they said to me, well, we can only tell you what the, the Jewish people that we talk to believe. And the Jewish people that they talk to, the, the scholars, the Messianic Jews and that, believe the Dome of the Rock has to go for the temple to be rebuilt. So I would just say, for me personally, whenever you hear about all these rockets flying into Jerusalem and stuff like that, uh, if one of them happens to hit and wipes out the Dome of the Rock, don't make any long vacation plans. <laughs> right. We don't we have no idea of what how this will all work it out work out other than to know the temple will be rebuilt because it will be there by the midpoint. And, and that's why we can say with assurance there's going to be another Jewish temple built because there has to be the place that this passage talks about for this to take place. Yeah. Because the abomination of desolation takes place in the Jewish temple. Be 
Well, like I said, there's two different opinions that are out there, Steve, and both of them will cite different things. But so I don't know. Look, that's well beyond uh, my pay grade and my level of expertise to know it. All I know is the temple will be rebuilt. Yeah, they, everything is, you, you have a group of people who believe that the temple will be there, and it's, you know, and it's not just a bunch of Christians. Uh, you know, there, there's prophecy that they need a, a red heifer for doing things. Uh, there's a few of them that exist in the world. One of them's down in Texas, and the guy's ready to fly it over there as soon as they need it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, uh Okay, back to our study. Get this hijacked and gone the wrong way. Okay. <laughs> All right, number two. It involves a person setting up a statue in place of the regular sacrifice in the Holy of Holies. This results in the cessation of the regular sacrifices. There will be a time of about three and a half years between the event and another event and the end of the time period. It involves an individual setting up a statue or image of himself so that he may be worshipped in the place of God. The image is made, excuse me, the image is made to come to life. Now, we don't know what all that may mean. Some have theorized it could be a hologram that it's made to come to life. A worship system of this false god is thus inaugurated, and at the end of this time period, the individual who commits the act will himself be cut off. Now, in verses 15 to 20, and basically, this is a message to those living during this period of time. Listen to what it says. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there shall be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. All right, the passage is saying the moment the Jewish remnant, and the, the Jewish remnant is referred to throughout the Olivet Discourse as the elect. It's referred to the elect in verses 22, 24, and 31. Soon as they see this watershed event of the abomination of desolation, they are to flee to the Judean fields. They are to flee instant. Why are they to flee instantly? It is because with the instantaneous event 
of the beast, Antichrist, setting up the abomination of desolation in the rebuilt Jewish temple, he goes from protecting Israel to persecuting her. Therefore, remember we talked at the midpoint he breaks the treaty with Israel. Therefore, the sooner the remnant can get out of town, then the less likely it will be that Antichrist will be able to persecute the Jews. Another reason why they will be able to flee instantly is because they will be miraculously provided for and protected as they make their way to Petra. That's where most people believe that they are going to go during this period for the three and a half years of safekeeping. Matthew 24, 16 to 20 provides a set of instructions for the remnant. Christ tells them where to go, the Judea mountains. Jesus says to flee instantly. Don't even take a few minutes to collect a few personal belongings, like your cloak in the field or a few items from your house for the journey. He warns that it will be difficult to navigate the mountain's terrain if pregnant or nursing a newborn. Jesus does not say that it will be impossible, but that it will be difficult. Difficulty will be compounded if the event occurs in the winter or on a Sabbath because of the added restrictions that those times pose. The winter in Israel is the rainy season, which increases the hazards of travel in the Judean hills because the creeks and rivers provide an obstacle not there during other seasons. The Sabbath imposes a travel restriction that is not in force on the other six days of the week that poses a real problem to the observant Jews. Revelation 12.6 tells us, And the woman fled into the wilderness. The woman's a reference to Israel where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days or what? Three and a half years. God has prepared a place for faithful Israel to be cared for during the last half of the tribulation period. Satan's wrath is focused on the Jewish remnant, so God provides special protection for them. Revelation 12, 4, 14 says, But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time, or three and a half times, which is three and a half years. The image of the eagle is a figure of speech showing God's assistance, much like Israel during the Exodus. In Exodus 19, 4, it says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Isn't it interesting? That same imagery is used when they're fleeing, you know, from Egypt. It's now used of them fleeing from the Antichrist who will be after them. Verse 21 tells the Jewish remnant why they need to flee. The first half of the tribulation has been bad, but the second half will be worse. Now, keep in mind, when we think of the tribulation period, things just continue to get worse and worse as you go along. The judgments become more just like a woman's labor pains. 
They become closer and closer together, and they become stronger and stronger. That's how it is, as God is pouring down his wrath upon them. So the second half of the tribulation is far worse than the first half of the tribulation. Previously, we have seen that the word tribulation was used to refer to the first half of Daniel's 70th week in Matthew 24, verse 9. Dr. J. Dwight Pentecost provides an excellent statement on the usage of tribulation. The term tribulation is used in several different ways in Scripture. It is used in a non-technical, non-eschatological sense in references to any time of suffering or testing into which one goes. It is so used in the different passages listed there. It is used in its technical or eschatological sense in reference to the whole period of the seven years of the tribulation as in uh, Revelation 2.22, Matthew 24.29. It is also used in reference to the last half of the seven-year period in Matthew 24, verse 21. The tribulation period is not exclusively a New Testament doctrine. The tribulation period is a topic that has a rich Old Testament background, and the events of this time are directed toward and involve the nation of Israel. The Old Testament speaks of a time of tribulation that Israel is destined to endure in the latter days. But when this period is passed, it will result in national repentance and the nation in right relationship with the Lord. Note some of the following key passages. When you are in distress, which means tribulation, and all these things have come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice. That's clear back in Deuteronomy chapter 4. In Jeremiah 37, alas, for that day is great, there is none like it, and it is the time of Jacob's distress. That is tribulation. But he will be saved from it. Uh, from Daniel chapter 12. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince, who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise and there will be a time of distress, tribulation, such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. In addition to these specific tribulation passages noted above, there is the general theme uh, dominant in the Old Testament of individuals and the nation crying out to the Lord when a time of distress and tribulation, when in a time of distress and tribulation. For example, there's a major theme in Psalm 107, verse 6. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He delivered them out of their distresses. Note the following passages that have a similar... Uh, so you see this theme of tribulation and being delivered from it by God is a theme throughout the Old Testament. Not always referring to the ultimate tribulation period, but this thing, you'll endure tribulation and then you'll be rescued. But then it is also used specifically of this period of time that we're talking about. In fact, Paul writes about Israel's deliverance from tribulation in Romans chapter 9 through 11. Romans 10, 11, and 15 tells us that one day Israel will call on the name of the Lord and be saved. 
The redemption will occur one day to national Israel, but it will come during the tribulation period, the great tribulation. Actually, it comes at the very end. In verse 21, the great tribulation is, is talked about. Look at that again, at what it says. It says, for then there will be great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. So this is going to be a time unlike anything else that has ever hit the earth or ever will hit the earth. Matthew 24, verse 21 speaks about the great tribulation. What is the great tribulation? The great tribulation is the last three and a half year period of the tribulation. So when we talk about the tribulation, it is correct to talk about the whole seven years as being the tribulation period. But the term great tribulation is reserved for the last three and a half years of that period. This will culminate in the second advent of Christ. Dr. John Walvoord says the Great Tribulation accordingly is a specific period of time beginning with the abomination of desolation and closing with the second coming of Christ in light of Daniel's prophecies and confirmed by references to 42 months. In Revelation 11.2 and 13.5, the Great Tribulation is a specific three and a half year period leading up to the second coming. That the period would be a time of unprecedented trouble is brought out clearly in Revelation 6 through 19. There you're reading of the different judgments. Putting all these scriptures together, it indicates that the great tribulation will mark the deaths of hundreds of millions of people in a comparatively short period of time. The New Testament uses the term great tribulation in three other places, in addition to Matthew 24, 21. While Acts 7:11 does not refer to the last half of the future seven-year period, the other two do as follows. Revelation 2.22, Behold, I will cast her upon a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. Revelation 7, 14, And I said to him, My Lord, you know, and he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The great tribulation is said by Jesus in Matthew to be the greatest since the world began or ever will be for the Jewish people. Mark 13, 19 is even clearer where our Lord says, for those days will be a time of tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created until now and never shall. Since the beginning of the creation makes it very clear that this period uh, will be the greatest time of tribulation for the Jewish people in all history. John MacArthur writes about this, no time or event in the history of Israel fits the description of the Holocaust Jesus is here speaking of. The horrifying time is further described in some detail in Revelation 6 to 16, where the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments exhibit the escalating intensity of God's wrath upon sinful, rebellious mankind. 
Both the books of Revelation and of Daniel make it clear that the Antichrist will tyrannize the world for a time, times, and half a time. That is a year, two years, and half a year, or three and a half years. Clearly the events described by our Lord, by Daniel and by John, must refer to the same great holocaust at the end of time, just before the millennial kingdom is established. Christ is clearly using the language of Daniel 12.1, which says, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time, and at that time, your people. Joel 2.2 also employs similar language when it says, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations. It is significant that in both of these passages, the time of tribulation results in the redemption of the Jewish remnant. Remember, what is part of the purpose of the tribulation? To bring the nation of Israel back into right relationship with God. Just such a redemption is described in Matthew 24, we'll be talking about that later on, where it says, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the others. There's also another purpose of the tribulation, and that is to purge the rebels. As I have been saying, the purpose of the tribulation, especially the great tribulation, in relation to the nation of Israel, is to prepare her for final redemption. This is taught in several passages cited above about her deliverance from tribulation. We also find in passages like Ezekiel 20 and 22, the Lord providing an overview of Israel's entire history. Often the prophet recounts the nation's past history of disobedience, and then predicts that there will come a time in the future when the nation will finally become obedient to the Lord. Usually this will come after the nation has gone through a great trial and tribulation as we see in Ezekiel chapter 20. But the significant thing is that at the end of this process, the nation is brought into the bond of the covenant. As I, as I live, declares the Lord God, Surely with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I will be king over you. And I shall bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples and there I shall enter into judgment with you face to face as I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. And I will make you pass under the rod, and I shall bring you into the bond of the covenant, and I shall purge you, the rebels and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they will not enter the land of Israel, Thus will you know that I am the Lord. 
Zechariah chapter 13 and 14 records a similar scenario as we have seen in many of the Old Testament passages noted above. The passage speaks of all the nations of the world sending armies to surround Jerusalem. Yet through this time of tribulation, the Israel, through this time of tribulation, Israel is converted and rescued through the personal return of Christ. Uh, The following passages from Zechariah 13 speaks of God purging two-thirds of Israel, but saving the remaining third. says and it will come up and it will come about in the land declares the lord that two parts in it will be cut off and perish but the third will be left in so you recognize what's happening there during the tribulation period two-thirds of the nation of israel is killed off now you'll have those there'll be a large number of them that are in the city of jerusalem who do not follow the command of the Lord to get out. You know, the abomination of desolation begins the persecution of them. And Jesus is telling them, remember, if they're out in the field, what are they to do? Just take off. If you're in the city, don't go back in your house to get anything. Just get out of there. Now, you know people well. Is everyone going to do that? They need their stuff. Well, their stuff is going to it's going to kill some of them. Plus, remember at this point in time, as we're going through the tribulation period, not all the Jews are saved yet. Now you have that remnant that's going to get out that are probably the Messianic Jews and stuff that are getting out of there, obeying the words of Jesus, because you got to believe this is going to be preached to them. The gospel of the kingdom is going to be preached to them, and they're going to be warned by those preaching them, hey, this is coming, and when you see it, if you're in Jerusalem, get out of here, guys. So two-thirds of them are going to be killed. And the Lord says, and I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. Matthew 24 is similar to these Old Testament passages in that Christ predicts the nation will pass through the time of great tribulation. But when these events have transpired, Jesus will return and rescue the elect remnant. Christ's prophetic sermon, as recorded in Matthew, follows the well-established pattern found in the Old Testament. Since Matthew 24 speaks of tribulation, followed by, followed by immediately by rescue, then his prophecy has to be future to our time, since the Jewish people have never gone through anything like this in past history. Matthew 24, 21, Christ speaks of a future time that will be the worst time in the history of the world for the Jewish people. Nevertheless, he will deliver those who come to faith in him as their Messiah from this terrible time. These things must take place in order that God's plan for history to work out issues of good and evil. How do we know this? Matthew 24, 21 
is a quote by Jesus from Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. The entire context of Daniel chapter 12 provides further information about what Christ has said in Matthew 24, 21. Daniel's response is not surprising to the revelation of the tribulation as we see in Daniel 12, 8. Remember what Daniel said? As for me, I heard but could not understand. So I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? This is often a question that comes into our minds when we read of the events of the tribulation. God's answer through the angel is as follows. And he said, go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the time. Many will be purged, purified, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. God's purpose of the tribulation, especially the great tribulation, last three and a half years, is to purge out those unbelieving Jews through the events of the time and to bring to faith the elect Jewish remnant. We know that the events described in both Matthew and Daniel have not yet in the past led to mass conversion of the Jews, as these passages indicate. That the conversion of the Jews is yet to occur no Christian would doubt, since the tribulation proceeds and gives rise to their conversion, there is no doubt that it too lies in a time future to our own day. So as we read these prophecies, as we said before, there are those who want to see all of this fulfilled in 70 AD. The preterists believe that all of this was fulfilled in 70 Has any of that happened? So in order to believe it was fulfilled in 70 A.D., you cannot interpret this passage literally. And I see no reason to interpret it any other way than literally. All right, questions. We covered a lot here. Sue. So. Will the 144,000 live through the tribulation? Uh, I don't know. We know that the two witnesses get killed at the midpoint of the tribulation, I, just right off the top of my head, I don't know whether it says that they will live through the whole tribulation or not. We know the two witnesses for the first three and a half years, they can't harm them. They will seek to kill them, put them to death, but God has put a hedge of protection around them until the midpoint where he does allow them to be killed. I would think just the message that they have. You know, the, the, the passage speaks that God has sealed them. So I don't think that means they have any special mark on their forehead or anything like that. But I just, just the message that they're proclaiming. Now, there may be some identifying factor. You know, I, you know I, my, my guess would be especially when they're speaking to a Jewish audience, that they would identify themselves as to who they are, you know, proclaiming to them. You know, just like uh, Paul does in, in Romans, God is not through with the nation of Israel yet. I'm a Benjaminite. You know, I've come from that tribe. I think you could have that, you know, taking place with 144,000. 
I'm of this tribe, and God has saved me and given me the message to come. Just, just, I would say, Eli, think of them in the terms of how you would think of a prophet in the Old Testament and how they would be identified going and proclaiming God's word. That would be the best thing I could come up with there. Don? Yes, that's, that would be a passage they would appeal to. And so they would say, because of the time of desolation, they would say that's the same as the abomination of desolation. Uh, as, you're, as we're talking about it, though, what we're trying, it says it's a time of desolation, but it does not specifically in Luke, in the context of the destruction of Israel in 70 AD, say the abomination of desolation. So there was desolation that occurred. And we could probably say there are times where there has been desolation upon the Jewish people, but it's not the abomination of desolation. The other thing that why we would point out that is different is as we look at the, the passages when it comes here to the abomination of desolation, notice there's no message of the city being surrounded by armies as the sign for them, which did occur in 70 AD and was fulfilled. Remember, we talked about the Romans surrounded it, and because their supply line got cut off, they had to stop the siege and to go take care of that problem after they had surrounded the city, and that's when many of the Jews got out of the city because they followed what they were told there. But yeah, but that would be a passage they would appeal to. Uh, but in some of the other things that are talking about, they don't know how to deal with some of the statements that are made there to make them occur in 70 AD. And in addition to that, you have to go into uh, imagery for the language because th even they would agree that what's being talked about in the judgments in the book of Revelation line up with what's being predicted here in Matthew chapter 24. So they have to find a way that the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments all took place in 70 AD as well. Yes. I think what a lot of people have a question about, though, is faith in what? Do they have to have a faith in the Messiah, or do they just have to have faith in God? They believe what God's, you know, like Abraham believed and then it's credited to him as righteousness, but did they specifically have to put their faith in the hope of the coming Messiah? People are, I've, I've heard people say that. Okay, so, so there we have, and this is the, 
a, a difference as well when it comes to a doctrine that we call progressive revelation. That God over time has progressively revealed more and more to us. Now, the purest Don that you're talking about that would argue does not believe in progressive revelation. So basically their viewpoint would be when they say there's only one way of, of salvation, they would, they would say that Abram had to understand that there was a coming Messiah and would have to understand in some way that that Messiah was going to die and come back to life. And I would say to you, that's reading a whole lot back into the Old Testament. And I, I would say uh, <coughs> to you, there seems to be little understanding there are glimpses of it throughout the Old Testament. But, but I think even of Jesus and his disciples. Who would have more knowledge of the teaching than his disciples? How many times did Jesus tell his disciples he was going up to Jerusalem and he was going to be put to death? And how many of them understood that? So if they didn't understand that, the, we, we certainly can't say it's the fault of the teacher, right? You know, because Jesus made that clear. But I think it's reading a lot. So there are, there are degrees of understanding in the Old Testament. For instance, Job, though, and this would be a passage they would quote, Job's, Job believed that there was a future resurrection. He understood that because he knew his Redeemer lived. So what exactly they understood. But we come to Abraham. What is it that Abraham believed? It's the promise that God had just made to him. The promises of the Abrahamic covenant that we've been studying. God told him that. Abraham believed God. And because of that, it was counted to him for righteousness. Now, he's still saved by the blood of Christ that was shed. But that was a promise in the Old Testament that was not totally and completely understood. Okay, other question. I have been in church for 80 years, and I've never heard very many altar calls for the Jewish person. Why are we as a church not more passionate if we understand this is the, this is the history to be of the Jewish people? Well, I, I would uh, say we are passionate about seeing Jewish people come to know uh Christ. Uh, we don't necessarily have to have an altar call for them to, to come up, but challenging them to put their faith and trust in Christ as Savior. And an altar call is just a tool that is used. I'm talking about the mass. I'm not just talking about the altar call. Yeah. I'm talking like all these years, I have never heard anything about other than drunks and people with you know, all kinds of sins. <laughs> Okay, well, for you to know, for instance, we have a Jewish evangelist that we support as a, as a church, uh, who, and we also support a ministry, One for Israel, that is, has an extensive Jewish uh, radio program in 
reaching out where they have members of their group that even debate the rabbis over in Israel, over who Jesus is and what he is. So we do support that going out to them. So we're trying to do our part. <laughs> Other question? Yes. Right. It says in Revelation 7, but then when you get to Revelation 14, it says the Father's name is written on their foreheads. Okay, this is the Lamb and the 144,000. This is after the two witnesses are killed. And then it says they were redeemed from the earth. Yeah. So that's how they weren't here the whole time. No, they, they get saved at the beginning of the or at least by the beginning of the tribulation period. But I don't think there's going to be just, I don't think it's going to be a visible mark that is on them. But, but they are sealed and protected by God, certainly. But I, I would say that, I, and I don't know whether it's, a, and I'd have to go back and look at it, whether it says no harm can come to them. Okay, so it's, uh, you know, in the same way, we're sealed by God, and we have a mark upon us. It's just they are set aside for a specific purpose. No, they're going to preach throughout the whole world. But no, I think, but well, they ha somebody has to be preaching to the Gentiles because there's a great multitude of, the, of Gentiles that get saved during the tribulation period, which no man can number. There's just, that's happening. Okay, let's close in a word of prayer. Thanks, everybody. Father, we thank you for your word, and with interest we look into your word, Lord, and we seek understanding. Pray that you would give us understanding. Thank you for revealing to us what you have. May it cause us to give glory to you and worship you more and more. In Jesus' name, amen.